Okay. Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host, handy dandy partner in crime slash chocolate eating, whiskey drinking, best mm. volleyball playing co-host that ever was, <laughs> aka <laughs> Darcy. <laughs> the crowd goes wild. <laughs> we were just thinking about you the other day, too, because I played last night and I played in our Thursday league that Darcy and I ended up meeting each other in, like, what was that, like 10 years ago? Yeah, something like that. Anyway, I played in that league last night um, with some former members of Darcy's old team that she played with before she left, with Cassie. I said hi for you, by the way. Oh, hi, Cassie. I miss Cassie. So I know you've probably seen her on social media. She's had another baby since then. That kid has so much hair already. Right. She's just the cutest little thing that ever was. Cassie says she's just the easiest baby ever. Oh, that's awesome. Her first baby was not super, super hard anyway, but like mm-hmm. that her second baby makes her first baby look like a crazy maniac. Wow. <laughs> so we, like, we had a good laugh about that, which was super funny because and her, her kids and are her like, ki- like her and her husband are both like so low key. Yeah. Well, they're like ridiculously attractive. Fit, yeah, he models. Like, just I'm, I'm disgusted by the whole thing. <laughs> and she's a <laughs> so fucking legit fair. volleyball player. Like she's unbelievable. Yeah. She is so fun to play with. Like mm-hmm. everything about her is just she's so polite. She's so sweet. She never curses. She never gets mad. She plays well all the time. She hustles everywhere. Like this is just I can't even stand it. She's so perfect. I hate her. I don't think I ever <laughs> noticed that she never swears. And that's probably because I swear so much. <laughs> I felt so bad. She never says a bad word. She's never negative. She never no, she puts isn't. anyone down. She's just like the most positive, sweet person that ever was. Aww, and it's just I like, how do, how do people like that exist? Mm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. <laughs> and then they like us. <laughs> I don't know, man. And the thing is, she's so sweet. Like I hadn't seen her in forever. I'd asked her to play like a dozen times and she was always like, no, 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 I can't do it. Cause they've got two kids obviously. Yeah. So anything that they do, they've got to organize together so that one of them is always, you know, looking out for the kids, which I totally get. But evidently her husband is an incredible athlete as well. I think that's yeah, how they is. met, isn't it? Playing volleyball. They met, she played volleyball at her college in Pittsburgh, and he also went to that college, and I think that they met just at college. I don't, he didn't, he wasn't an athlete or anything, but I think he started picking up volleyball because she played. And I played but in their, like, like, a co-ed league with him, and he's good. He's incredible. Like, he's a very, very good athlete. Both the yeah. two of them together have more athletic ability in their little pinky <laughs> than I have in my whole fucking body. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in any case, shout out to Cassie. I doubt she listens to our show because... You know, we have a lot of profanity. <laughs> she doesn't curse. <laughs> but we love you, Cassie and Ross. I love you. We love I miss you, you. Anyway, um, that's kind of reminded me a little bit of Miss Darce. I was missing the old days where we used to go out on Thursdays and we would play, you know, maybe for an hour. And then we would get these pina drink. coladas from Jamba Juice and mix it with, you know, whatever drink was on hand, usually rum, and have this delicious, delectable pina colada beverage as we sat and talked shit about everybody else that played in our league. It was less of a talk. Sometimes uh, it was talking shit. But but oh, that was the mostly it was just like me doing a running commentary on what's happening in front of me. Either that or Darcy would be watching whatever sporting event she was betting on at the moment simultaneously. No, I never bet. <laughs> I always, um, I was always watching Auburn or um, college football. And then what was that? What was that girl's name? Katie? No, not Katie. Who was it? Kelly? Kelly. She was always the one that would bet. And, and so she would always ask me. She would always ask me for the scores, and so I would give her updates, but I did not gamble. Shout I out to Kelly. To <laughs> Our real estate agent slash mortgage lady slash everything else. Yeah. She hooked us up. Anyway, um, back to the show. Anyway. <laughs> we digressed a little bit. We went down sort of a pathway there, but I'm going to talk about a current event that I picked up on in the news here that I thought was particularly I mean I don't want to make light of this because this is a really scary thing for a lot of people and there have been a lot of events in recent times that have really scared a ton of people with respect to public transportation and things of that nature but this particular article I found on yahoo.com but it was originally um, released in the Associated Press 
today, but the article is titled Police Seek to Question Man in NYC Rice Cooker Bomb Scare. Jeez, so that's first terrifying. of all, I was not aware that rice cookers were now considered an illegal device. Three abandoned devices that looked like pressure cookers caused an evacuation of a major New York City subway station and closed off an intersection in another part of town on Friday morning before police determined the objects were not explosives. Police are looking to talk to a man seen in surveillance video taking two of the objects, which police identified as rice cookers, out of a shopping cart and placing them in a subway station in lower Manhattan. The young man is seen standing by an elevator and then lugging a cooker in. Police stress that so far it isn't clear whether he's trying to frighten people or merely throwing the objects away. They're not really calling him a suspect, but they're just kind of wanting to talk to him to find out why somebody would put out a bunch of items in a fucking subway instead yeah. of like really like so disposing of them in the proper were way not bombs right like that's exactly not bombs no bomb making things within those devices like anytime you're putting out a rice rice cooker somewhere that's not your kitchen counter and if you're putting out multiple of them there's certainly cause for concern that's a weird thing to do well, law authorities suspected the items were placed in the subway to suggest that they were electronic devices and possibly bombs. Many rice cookers look like pressure cookers, but the latter use pressure to cook food quickly, a function that has been used to turn them into bombs in the past. Right. And that's what they use at the Boston Marathon bombing. We're a pressure right. cookers, not rice cookers. So police swarmed this area at around 7 a.m., shutting off all the layer, all the levels and the mezzanine and the platform levels at the Fulton Street Station, a few blocks from the World Trade Center and the New York Stock Exchange. So there's some history there. So people were probably very scared. Dozens of suspicious packages are reported daily in New York City, but the proximity to the site of September 11 attacks served to heighten the anxiety in this particular mm. instance. About two hours later, a third rice cooker, the same make, year, and model, was also found about two miles away on a sidewalk in the Chelsea in, in a Chelsea neighborhood, prompting another police investigation. People were freaked out. So um, let's talk about this a little bit. Understandably, like that would be devastating in a subway terminal for something like that to happen. Um, but maybe he was just he had extra rice cookers and he just wanted to give some away. Maybe he was, this is all just a purely altruistic act on his part, but I think given the fact that pressure cookers were packed with explosives and mm -hmm. used to kill three people and injure hundreds during the Boston Marathon in 2013 kind of put people on edge. Sure. Pressure cookers do look a lot like rice cookers. Yeah, but like a rice cooker just boils water. Like... Right. But they and look a lot like a pressure and cooker. Then it turns off. And they do. In 2016, a pressure cooker bomb went off in Manhattan's Chelsea neighborhood, also injuring 30 people. Jeez. And then in 2017, a would-be suicide attacker set off a homemade pipe bomb in an underground passageway at Times Square subway station during rush hour, seriously injuring himself. So he didn't die in that particular instance. But clearly there have been multiple instances where rice cooker looking objects were used in sort of a very, very destructive manner to set off bombs. So, I mean, we kind of chuckled about this and gave it a, a laugh at first, but in reality, I mean, anytime you have a suspicious looking device in a public area, you have now it's a shame that we have to be on edge. I mean, maybe this guy just yeah. wanted to be, you know, giving and caring and share his rice cookers with other people. I can't I can't imagine the situation where you have three extra rice cookers, though. Who the fuck you know has I mean? three like, rice cookers like to just set in the subway? And why put it in the subway? He got married um, and people didn't pay attention to his registry. And so he was like, what do I do? I can't take these back to Bed Bath and Beyond. I so should just, just set them, them all in the, the subway. subway terminal. Why not just sell them on Craigslist? Like, really? You have to put them in the subway terminal? Also, like, like is anybody picking, like, seeing a rice cooker in a subway terminal thinking, hey, free rice cooker. Free rice cooker. <laughs> I'm on it. I've been needing a rice cooker. I was on my way to the store to get a rice cooker. And what do you know? In the subway right here, there's three of them. Okay, but first of all. Unlikely, I can sort I of see I can sort of see that because my dad would probably be one of those people who would pick that shit up. But that's not the point. The point is, who the fuck is going to pick up a rice cooker from a subway? I'm immediately going to think that shit's a bomb. I'm not touching it. 
or somebody's it's or it's somebody's toilet. Right. So regardless of whether any of these previous instances has happened in the Boston Marathon and all those other events, because I did not know it was a rice cooker involved in those previous incidences. So regardless well, it wasn't. of, of it that, was a pressure that fact, if I saw a freaking rice cooker in a subway that was just sitting there chilling unattended, I wouldn't touch that shit with a 10 foot no. pole. I'm all set. I'm turning around and walking the other way. So the only thing I can think of that that would be my thoughts with respect to an abandoned rice cooker in a subway is there's something nefarious going on here. Right. Like it was it, it was supposed to look like something. Yes. And it's either a shit pot or it's a bomb. One of those two things. There's there's no and other I, alternative. I think there's like cheaper if you if you're in a situation where you need a shit pot, I think there's like cheaper alternatives. Yeah. Like a garbage can or like a bag or or a box know. or yeah. Like I don't think if you're in a situation where you need to shit in a pot in the subway, <laughs> I just don't think that you are like being that picky about what it is that you're you're shitting in. And this is like the most I've ever talked about bathroom talk ever. I don't like it. Do they have plugins in the subway? Can you plug in a rice cooker in the subway? I have no idea. Can somebody we need to, write we in need and to tell know us? This. <laughs> is there like a spot? Is it like an airport where you can like stop and charge your phone? I don't want to make light of this, though. I mean, I want we want to make this clear that this is a scary fucking thing. And what's even scarier to me is that we have to be worried about this kind of shit now. I mean, before 9-11, we wouldn't have thought anything of a rice cooker in the subway. Right. At the same time, though, I think that if we didn't kind of have conversations like this where we can joke in hindsight now knowing that they were not dangerous. I don't know of another way to like get through it because if, if I had to like be on my, like, uh, like on alert every fucking second of every fucking day and not be able to laugh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make it through it. You know what I mean? It's too much. I am it's too so much. glad I don't have to take the subway to work because, quite frankly, I am sure that they get bomb scares and weapon scares and all kinds of shit constantly in that They, they area. don't even know about, I'm sure. It just seems so frightening to, like, be in an area where there are mass numbers of people in a small, mm-hmm. confined area. That, to me, is horrifying. I've never even been to New York, so I have... Literally nothing to add to this conversation. I've been upstate. I've never been to the city. So I can't say that this is not some place that I would seek out to go visit. I mean, no offense, New York. I'm sure it's fabulous. It's a lot of people. I don't really enjoy crowded scenes with lots of people. Yeah. That's the same reason I don't like L.A. Yeah. Too many people. Too people-y. Yeah. I don't like being in places where with people. So the three three rice cooker bomb scare thing was a wake up call for a lot of people. Don't you think? Yeah, you don't maybe you don't need so nice a shit pot. Maybe that's that's the message. Wake up, Darcy. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit, that took you like twenty minutes to respond on that comment. Sorry. <laughs> We're gonna cut Are you it. drunk already? <laughs> Shut up. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about today's topic. We're gonna dive into a case that I have found particular interesting in many respects for a long time because this whole thing came out, I believe, back about the time when I was in college, high school or college. Yeah. No. So this happened in 94. Didn't it happen in like 89? Oh, they were convicted in 94. Yeah. So it happened in 89, but they weren't convicted until 94. So the whole trial thing was on TV when I was... In college. Yeah, yeah. I was like, so, I know you're older than me, but you were not in college in 89. I know that. Yeah, no, no. I wasn't in college at the time that the crime actually occurred, but I gotcha. was in college when they were convicted. And I remember hearing quite a bit about it because that was not long after the whole O.J. Simpson thing. And it was right before O.J. As Americans, we kind of became obsessed with crime and with watching trials on TV after Dude, these particular cases. I know I was. I didn't watch this one because I was in fourth grade. Um, I remember it being on the news every single day. But man, fucking OJ, two years later, I can tell you where I was when I watched that verdict. Like we stopped my oh, yeah. six period science class to watch that verdict in middle school. Um, 
FYI, we're not talking about the O.J. Simpson case on the show today. No, we're not. To the listeners. <laughs> Psych! I just want to gonna... talk about anything with the 90s. I just love it. We're going to talk about the Menendez brothers on the show today. Lyle and Eric. And the thing is, this has kind of had... This has had a little bit of a resurgence in recent times. Yeah. There have been some interesting developments that have happened with this case, but in, let's just dive into this a little bit. Let's just dive into this case just to scotch. Scotch. As if that's Lyle a thing in the, and in the Eric Menendez. Their father, Enrique, Jose Enrique Menendez, they have a lot of accents over the characters and his name on this. So I, I think we're supposed to like use an accent when we pronounce well his name. i can't roll my tongue so anyway jose enrique jose. menendez was born may 6 1944 this is their father in havana cuba so they were cuban at age 16 this gentleman moved to the united states after the cuban revolution which is not uncommon mm-hmm. jose attendance attended southern illinois university where he met mary louise kitty anderson is that not the whitest fucking name that ever was but her, she didn't have Kitty as an actual legal name, right? That was a nickname? That was a nickname. Mary Louise. What was her Mary Louise. Name? Mary Louise Anderson. Aunt, that's geez. like that's as white as shit. it gets. As white as it gets. <laughs> anyway, so this Anderson. Cuban guy comes to the U.S. to escape the Cuban Revolution, meets this gorgeous American woman. They get married it's in It's your classic Lucy and Desi. It is. And they moved to New York City where Jose earns an accounting degree from Queens College and just starts killing it in the accounting business. The couple's first son, Joseph Lyle Menendez, who went by his middle Lyle's name. a rough name. It is. Uh, why would you choose? If you have Joseph, why would you choose to go by Lyle? I don't know. Maybe he figured there were too many Josephs already around because that was such a common name back then, and it still is yeah, pretty but common. Lyle, but he chose, instead great. of going by Joseph, to go by Lyle Menendez. And he was the first son was born January 10th, 1968. Kitty, the mom here, quit her teaching job after Lyle was born, and the family moved to New Jersey. Yay, New Jersey! My sister lives there now. Oh, really? Eric was... Yeah, yeah. I don't know that she necessarily chose to live there. I think that mm-hmm. her husband got stationed there, and then he ended up mm-hmm. passing away, and then they had bought a house, so she was kind of stuck. So I, I don't know that New Jersey is anyone's first choice. <laughs> sorry sorry to the listeners in New Jersey. Anyway, um, Eric was born November 27th, 1970. In New Jersey, the family lived in the Hopewell Township. And both brothers attended Princeton Day School, which was oh, a pretty nice, nice joint to be involved in, right? They're kind of bougie boys at that point. Mm-hmm. Dad was killing it in his work career, and he became a corporate executive and took the family then to Calabasas, which is, I believe, where the Kardashians are. Am I right on that? It, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very wealthy area of L.A. A very affluent area in L.A. The brothers lived there during their adolescence. The following year, Eric began attending high school in Calabasas, where he earned average grades, but had a remarkable talent, they said. Those are exact words. Remarkable. At tennis. He actually ranked 44th in the nation of 18 and under players. So he was wow. killing it in the tennis game. He then, uh, Lyle then enrolled at Princeton University, but during his freshman year, he was placed on academic probation for shitty grades and bad attendance. Hmm. He was also suspended for a year after being accused of plagiarism. Hmm, interesting. Hey, weird. We just just had a whole conversation about that. (laughs) So clearly these boys, Eric has a little bit of a talent for tennis, and Lyle is good at doesn't cheating. seem to have a talent for anything, yeah. He's good at cheating and plagiarism. <laughs> I mean, he's <laughs> he not keep... even good at it because he got kicked out of college. But the thing is, he got into Princeton, so he can't yeah, have been that bad. He got bad. into Princeton because they had money. He didn't earn his way to Princeton. Be serious. You don't think? No. His dad, <laughs> Jose, was the original Lori Laughlin. <laughs> So you don't think he had exemplary grades and a, a uh. spotless list of extracurricular activities? Um, no, Jared Kushner. I don't think that he earned his way into college. <laughs> <laughs> Jared Kushner. <laughs> oh, that was a weird... T- Sorry, I choked for a second. You may need to cut that. 
<laughs> oh my god, I have nothing against Jared Kushner, by the way. I do. Um, he's a horrible person. Yeah, I, I feel <laughs> I feel ambivalent during, towards the whole thing. I have no, no opinion one way or the other about him. <laughs> like whatever, he has nothing to fucking do with my life right now. Anyway, on the evening of August twentieth, nineteen eighty nine, which the eighties were drawing to a close, folks were starting to get into that ninety vibe feeling. But we were uh, still... George H W Bush was president. He right? was like vomiting on Gorbachev and falling downstairs. And oh my god, that was an amazing <laughs> time in history, was it not? <laughs> So, it's August, it's summer, it's L.A., it's warm. People are living that 80s lifestyle with the big shoulder Will pads. Will Smith's summertime is playing hair. on the radio. They've probably got a Mercedes with gold interior. There's probably gold faucets in their house. I'm, I and don't a know. sweet I'm, car phone. I'm going to speculate that they probably had a sweet car phone, too. Anyway, um, Jose and Kitty are sitting on the couch in their house in Beverly Hills. When Lyle and Eric just kind of barge into the den carrying shotguns. Jose is shot in the back of the head with a Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun, and Kitty was awakened by the shots and got up from the couch. So they Wait were a second, chilling. I thought they were at the movies. No. <laughs> oh. They were chilling on their couch. It sounds as though maybe they were watching a little bit of TV and Kitty was maybe sleeping. Because it says the kitty was awakened by the shots and got up from the couch. She was shot in the leg as she ran towards the hallway, causing her to slip on her own blood and fall. She Mm. was then shot multiple times in the arm, chest, and face, leaving her unrecognizable. Both Jose and Kitty were also shot in the kneecaps in an attempt to make the murders appear connected to organized crime. What the actual fuck? Right? And I, I don't... I know very little about organized crime methodology but do they actually shoot people in the kneecaps is that just one of those things you hear in movies you know what i mean uh, well evidently somebody somewhere shot people in the kneecaps otherwise how would they know that had to do with organized crime so i am sure that lyle and eric disguised themselves masterfully before they entered the house in beverly hills and pretended to be random gang members walking yeah that in one put on a different parents. toupee because wasn't he i don't remember which one it was but wasn't he wearing a toupee by the time he's like 15 I'm not sure. I'm sure we'll get into that at some point or another, though. Okay. <laughs> we can have a Sorry. 2K discussion. <laughs> so then Lyle and Eric take off, swing back around the house later that night, and call 911, shouting that someone killed their parents. That's a rough 911 call. So the police show up, and the brothers tell them they went to the theater to see the movie Batman, and then to the annual Taste of L.A. festival in Santa Monica. Sidebar, I love the original Batman. Yeah, so clearly this was the original Batman. And they say, okay, we have an alibi because we were at the movies and we were at the Taste of L.A., so we could not have murdered our parents. The police did not order the brothers to get the gunshot residue test to find out whether they had recently used a firearm. Because we're in Beverly Hills. Right, and it's an affluent neighborhood, and God knows Mm -hmm. these teenage boys couldn't have done something like this. Since a lack of evidence prevented them from looking into the brothers more thoroughly, the police were like, hey, what the fuck ever? We don't need to order these ballistics How tests. How can that be a lack of evidence? Like, that's like you're choosing to not look at the evidence. <laughs> so, essentially, the, the, cops, the cops let them off the hook on this one. They were, like, kind of home free, essentially. Yeah. But then, this is where the shit starts to fly. In the months following the murders of their parents, the brothers started to spend money, like, there was no tomorrow. They bought Rolexes, a Porsche, a street cafe, a Buffalo restaurant in New Jersey, and Eric hired a full-time tennis coach to compete in tournaments in Israel. So I didn't realize point, Israel was known for their tennis. After they start to spend the money so crazy, people are starting to get a little bit suspicious that maybe they had something to do with the murder of their parents. Right. Yeah, they didn't seem too broken up about the fact that both of no. their parents were horrifically murdered. They were just pretty they jazzed about this money. Not they upset, and they were just spending money like it was like growing on trees in the backyard, going so, out of style. These two brothers eventually left their family mansion unoccupied, and they decided to live in adjoining condos in nearby Marina del Rey. So they were like, "Hey, let's find this sweet duplex and live our best <laughs> life." <laughs> 
They, at that point, drove around L.A. in their dead mother's Mercedes-Benz SL convertible, dined expensively, and went on overseas trips to the Caribbean and London. Jeez. So some sources actually speculate they spent a little under a million dollars during the time period between the murders and their arrests. How long so they were was that? living it up. Well, let's see here. So the murder happened in 89. Um, the trial didn't happen until 93, but I'm sure it's going to tell us when they were arrested. But they were arrested. So they're, they're arrested in 90. So in a yeah. year, they spent Jeez. like a million dollars. During the early stages of the investigation, the police tried to narrow their search down to people they thought would possibly have a motive to kill Jose and Kitty. One of these people was a pornography distributor named Noel Bloom. Mm. But they kind of wrote him off pretty quickly. And the investigation. It's, it's my understanding that Jose was not a particularly nice person. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit and some of the oh. defense arguments with that. But obviously they're involved in, you know, stuff that may not necessarily be like a squeaky clean as leave it to mm-hmm. beaver if they're involved with a pornography distributor. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also investigated potential mob leads, but nothing came out of those either, which, surprise, surprise, I mean, come on. I can't believe it. They were shot in the knees, though. Isn't that definitive? In that period of time, I think there was a lot of turning the other cheek when it came to criminal activity in that, of that kind of a sort. A lot of people were on the take, so to speak. However, yeah. as the investigation moved forward, the police believed the brothers were likely the culprits because they're spending all this money just after the murders. So in an attempt to get Eric to confess, so they're like, we're going to try to get the younger guy to lay it all out there on the table. The police ask one of Eric's close friends from high school and tennis buddy to wear a wire while having lunch with him at a local restaurant. So this dude, his name is Craig asks Eric point blank if he killed his parents and Eric says no way but then and eventually confesses to killing his parents to his psychologist so after Lyle threatened him the psychologist told his mistress about the murders who then told the police about the brothers involvement so some that, loose that's lips a whole on lot everybody's let's part unpack here. that cuz that's a lot of information so so Eric was seeing a psychologist correct Eric didn't didn't give any information up to the confidant, his friend, his buddy, who wore a wire to a lunch meeting to try to get him to confess, right? But mm-hmm. he did tell his psychologist, but his psychologist didn't say anything to the, to the police. The psych- psychologist told his girlfriend, and the girlfriend is the one that told the police. And girlfriend that he was seeing outside of his marriage. And so when Eric told Lyle that he told his... Typically, if this was a straight up case, the psychologist would not have to give testimony because this is a, a this is a doctor client. There's a privilege associated with being a patient at a doctor with a doctor. Uh-huh. Right. So he would not necessarily be, have been compelled to give the testimony of Eric with respect to the death of his parents. However, we have another issue here. He tells the spouse the spouse would also potentially not have to testify given spousal privileges, perhaps being involved. But he told the mistress, not the spouse. And the mistress is the one that told the police that this should have happened. So I have a question. So if I know that you are legally obligated, if you're a a psychologist or a therapist and you have somebody that comes to you in says makes a credible threat against somebody else that you are obligated to inform the police about that right do you have that same legal obligation if somebody tells you they have committed a murder in the past i don't believe that you do hang on let me just look that up real quick doctor client privilege because i want to i want to be able to speak right um, educated knowledge on this so basically what happens Eric tells his psychologist, his psychologist tells his mistress, Eric tells Lyle that he told a psychologist, Lyle goes to the psychologist's office and threatens the psychologist, and that's when the girlfriend, the mistress, went to the police, is my understanding of the timeline of that. Correct. So, essentially, here's some information about patient, physician-patient privilege. 
It is a legal concept related to medical confidentiality. Again, I got this from Wikipedia. That protects communication between a patient and their doctor from being used against them in court. As part of the rules of evidence in many common law jurisdictions, this can be used. Almost every jurisdiction that recognizes physician-patient privilege allows for the ability not to have to testify in court either by statute or through case law and limits the privilege to knowledge acquired during the course of providing medical services. In some jurisdictions, conversations between a patient and physician may not, or excuse me, may be privileged in both criminal and civil courts. So essentially what that's saying is that whatever is spoken between the doctor and the patient is not necessarily, they're not compelled to give that information in a criminal proceeding unless it's to prevent harm upcoming harm to someone that could potentially be at risk okay so if they come in and admit to a murder there is no legal obligation from the healthcare provider to go to the police with that information in most jurisdictions they cannot be compelled to testify against them in trial so it basically says the privilege may cover the situation where a patient confesses to a psychiatrist that he or she committed a crime it may also cover normal inquiries regarding matters such as injuries that can result in civil action. Okay. I've However, the rule, about that. the rule does not apply to confidences shared with physicians when they're not serving as the role in the role of medical providers. So if you're hanging out with your doctor outside of the medical office and you happen to let something slip, that's not protected. The only and protected the same way information for a lawyer, is, right? Yes. Yeah. So, like, if I tell our friend Kat something, who is a lawyer in the state of California, and I'm not, like, I'm not, she's not my lawyer at all. Like, there, there is no lawyer-client privilege there. No. Yeah, okay. So, just telling something to a lawyer does not mean that you're, it's protected. You have to actually retain their services. Right. So, gotcha. it's interesting because there are some caveats to this as well. Um, one of those is below-age consent of patients and sexually mm. transmitted diseases. So, if there's something related to a sexually transmitted disease, the doctor is usually required to obtain a list of the sexual contacts to inform the, the, them that they need treatment. So, if it's an HIV type of case or herpes or whatever, mm-hmm. they have to try to get a list of people to tell them they're going to need to have some some, And that's um, a public treatment. health concern. Right. Yeah, exactly. So many jurisdictions, they treat this privilege in the same way as communications with an attorney client type of a situation, Mm, except in cases where law enforcement officers seek blood or urine test samples from a patient who is being investigated for driving while intoxicated. So interesting. So, in any case here, the mistress of the psychologist, this sounds like a real shit show. Does it not? The miss. The- yeah, I mean, this is something that is straight out of a late 80s soap opera. Yeah, the mistress spills the beans, and then she tells the police about the brother's involvement. Lyle is then arrested on March 8th, 1990, and Eric then turns himself in three days later after returning to L.A. from Israel. So he gets back from his sweet-ass tennis tournament where he had his private coach and was like, oh, I better turn myself in. Both of the brothers were held without bail and separated from each other for obvious reasons because in that sort of instance, you don't want to have those two guys together to have time to formulate some sort of a story together that would potentially get them off the hook. In yep. August of 1990, the judge on this case <laughs> stated the tapes of the conversation between Eric and his psychiatrist were admissible since Lyle violated doctor-patient privilege by threatening his doctor. Huh. So evidently, once you threaten your doctor with bodily harm, it just puts that whole doctor-patient privilege thing out the door. Just another reason to not threaten your doctor with bodily harm. Right, but... Or, you know, commit violent crime. But that's what the judge stated, not necessarily what the law is. So this actually became an issue that allowed for an appeal. And the proceedings were delayed for two years based on the appeal on that particular issue. Jeez. But the Supreme Court of California stated in 1992 that most of these tapes were admissible except the one where Eric is discussing the murders. Interesting, right? Yeah, huh. Um, after that decision, an L.A. County grand jury issued indictments in December of 1992, charging the brothers with the murder of their parents. 
So this trial was a real shit show. I don't know if you watched mm-hmm. any parts of it, if you remember it at all, but it was a media sensation. I didn't watch it. Um, I feel like the things I remember are from like seeing it, like clips of it in hindsight. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know how much I actually remember from the time. This was about the time when court TV was really kind of getting its legs. Mm-hmm. And they broadcast this trial in 1993. And like Nancy Grace was like becoming a thing. And So I was in high school when they started broadcasting this case. I wasn't in college. That's my bad. Um, but their defense yeah. lawyer, Leslie Abramson, obviously she's famous. She's still like a big deal. She now. Yeah. She's done a lot of really high profile cases in her time. But she became known for her theory that the brothers were driven to murder by a lifetime of abuse at the hands of the parents, especially sexual abuse by the father, who was described as cruel, perfectionist, and a pedophile. So I do remember, you know what I do remember? I remember the the clip of them crying on the yeah. sand, or the one of them crying on the sand or whatever. That's what that one really sticks out on my mind as well. And it seems like a, a real mm-hmm. stretch because no one else seems to think that there's any evidence to support that except the brothers. But the mother was described as selfish, mentally unstable, alcoholic, drug addict, who encouraged her husband's abuses and was also sometimes violent toward them. That's crazy. So this whole shit show just sort of plays itself out as the brothers start crying on the stand and start accusing their parents of being drug addicts and pedophiles and all kinds mm-hmm. of other crazy shit. The trial ended with two deadlocked juries. So they had two mistrials, essentially. Jeez. But the L.A. County District Attorney at the time was like, fuck that. I'm retrying these bastards. Good. The second trial was a little bit less publicized than the first, partially because the judge didn't allow cameras in the courtroom. So he was like, I'm sick of this media fucking circus. We're not doing this shit again. No cameras. Learn that lesson. Right. Um, During the second trial, the judge did not allow defense attorney, or excuse me, during the second trial, the judge did not allow much defense testimony about the sexual abuse claims and did not allow the jury to vote on manslaughter charges instead of murder. So he just gave them basically one option. They didn't have the ability to downgrade it to manslaughter Hmm. on the second trial. So like the judge was like, I'm just kind of putting boxes in this so that we can get a conviction. Like he didn't want it to end up in in it. Sometimes when you have too many options, for the jury that can end up in a deadlock jury. Okay. So he, he reduced the number of allowable charges to kind of hope to, to keep from it being another mistrial. Well, sort of in the, the sort of instance that happens here, right? So you have a murder case and you allow the jury first degree murder or second degree murder. Right. And then Uh that gives them not very many options. It's easier for the jury to come to a decision. But if you allow them first-degree murder, second-degree murder, manslaughter, negligence, blah, 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 all these other charges that can kind of cloud things. And sometimes that can kind of confuse the jury as well because they're like, wait a minute, there's all these different options and all these different qualifications in order for them to apply to this option. And it can sometimes end with a deadlock jury. So if you cut down those options, and then I guess also if you need, cause you need a unanimous verdict. So like if you have some people that are saying like second degree and some people that are saying manslaughter, they're not saying anybody's innocent. They're just saying they can't agree on what. But it would deadlock the was, jury. Right? And so if you gotcha, get rid okay. of that, then you eliminate and sort of reduce the possibility that the jury will become deadlocked because some of them want manslaughter and some of them want murder. Right? Gotcha. Okay. So it was a smart move on the judge's part. But both brothers were eventually convicted of two counts of first-degree murder apiece and conspiracy to commit murder, which is a big thing. Because when you start to mm-hmm. add those murder charges with conspiracy and the fact that there was some planning involved, then you end up with the murder with no possibility of parole versus just a straight murder case for 40 years with the possibility of parole. So in one instance, you have the ability to get out at some point. The other, you're, you're fucked. You're never going to get out. They chose not to sort of look at a lot of the stuff that was involved in this, but deliberately chose not to impose the death penalty because both of the brothers had no criminal record or history of violence prior to the murders of their parents. It's interesting that in this case, the judge chose to make the testimony about the sexual abuse inadmissible. Narrowed it down. Because that completely changes. It's crazy. Yeah. 
unlike the juries in the previous trials, the jury in this particular case in the penalty phase rejected the theory the brothers had killed their parents out of fear and believed that the brothers had killed the mer- their parents to inherit the father's wealth. Yeah. Both of the brothers then filed motions for mistrial, claiming they had suffered irreversible damage in the penalty phase as a result of possible misconduct and ineffective representation by their attorney. What misconduct? Did they talk about that? What that would have been? Um, I think there was some allegations that she had like made a move on them sexually. Oh, I remember, remember that, that too. Yeah. Yes. Some crazy shit, right? Yeah. So on July 2nd, 1996, the judge sentenced the brothers to life in prison without the possibility of parole and also sentenced them to consecutive sentences for the murders and the charges of conspiracy to commit murder. So kind of unlike their pretrial detention, the California Department of Corrections separated the brothers and sent them both to two different prisons. Yeah. And I believe they are actually now... In the same prison? Um, They were considered to be maximum security inmates and segregated from other prisoners. They remain in separate prisons until February 2018 when Lyle was moved into Mule Creek State Prison in Northern California, or from Mule Creek State Prison in Northern California to Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego County. Those fuckers are in San Diego. Oh, you should go visit them. Right? But they were housed in separate units until April 4th, 2018, when Lyle was moved to the same housing unit as Eric, reuniting them for the first time since they began serving their sentences nearly 22 years earlier. Jeez. The brothers burst into tears and supposedly hugged each other at their first meeting in the housing unit. Aw, how tender. Um, So they were... They're in a unit that's basically reserved for inmates who are trying to participate in education and other rehabilitation programs without creating disruptions. Although, why the fuck would they ever do that if they're never going to be released? If there's no possibility of parole, what difference does it make whether they are in a rehabilitation program or not? I don't know. I, I didn't know they were in San Diego, though. You should go visit. Yeah, there's definitely been some activity. Um, I saw a show on Discovery, I think, about them being reunited and kind of showing them where they are now versus when they first got in. I believe the Lyle Menendez is like, looks like he's on steroids. He's shaved his hair off completely. And Eric still has hair, but they both have aged significantly since their time in prison. Yeah. I think Lyle was the one that was wearing a toupee in, like, high school. It's possible, but I don't... And I think once he went to prison, like, he just fully embraced that he was bald at, like, 20. Nothing that I really read about said anything about the toupee and none of the shows I watched, because I think I watched a Discovery Channel, and then they had, like, a... You know when they did the O.J. Simpson thing where they had... They yeah. did John Travolta and Selma Blair and all that? They did one for the Menendez brothers, too, and I don't recall yeah. having heard anything about the toupees, but... The brothers filed. I know uh, last podcast on the left talked about it. Oh, my God. So I can believe it. But I think he looks better with a shaved head. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, nobody looks. There's some crazy shit going on here. They filed as many appeals as they possibly could. And the appeals court upheld their murder convictions as well as the Supreme Court after reviewing the cases. And then their final ones were denied in 1999. Having exhausted their appeal remedies, they filed separate petitions in the district court September 7th 2005 a three-judge panel denied both of their petitions separately and stated that hey this this shit's happening we're not changing anything you two are in prison for the rest of your lives so I think that at this point they've exhausted their appeals their normal appeals right but there have been some marriages for these two gentlemen on July 2nd, 1996, Lyle married Anna Erickson in a ceremony attended by Abramson and his aunt Martha, or Marta. They divorced, though, in April 2001. So they were married for five years. This dude got married in prison. And he's in maximum security prison. Yeah. Um, Neat. Erickson, Erickson discovered that Lyle was allegedly cheating on her with another woman, and that's the reason for their divorce. What? That shit is crazy. Once again, I'm going to die alone. Right? And Lyle Menendez is married and having an affair while in maximum security. So then, get this, he gets married again in 2003. To the woman he was having the affair with? Uh, It says, Lyle married Rebecca Sneed at a ceremony in the Supermax prison visiting 
area of Mule Creek State Prison, and they knew each other for around 10 years before their engagement. So maybe. It doesn't hmm. say that that conclusively was who he was cheating with, but that's fucking scary. But they knew and each other. And then the other brother, Eric, married Tammy Sockerman in June of 1999 in a prison waiting room. Our wedding cake was a Twinkie, she said. <laughs> we improvised. Oh it was a wonderful ceremony until I had to leave. That was a very lonely night. Yeah, sometimes that'll happen right? when your husband's been convicted of two first-degree murders. She described her relationship with Eric as something I've dreamed about for a long time. What the actual fuck? You have, you have wrong dreams. And it's just something very Your special that I never thought I would ever have. Oh, my word. This says to me this woman just wants some media attention and to try to get her 15 minutes of fame because she self-published a book called They Said We'd Never Make oh. It, My Life with Eric Menendez. <laughs> Interesting. Oh. It's like that woman that tried to marry uh, Charlie Manson right before he I died. I guess so. In a 2005 interview with People Magazine... This nutcase said, not having sex in my life is difficult, but not a problem for me. I have to be emotionally attached. I'm emotionally attached to Eric. My family doesn't understand. When it started to get serious, some of them just threw up their hands. Tammy also stated that she and her daughter drive 150 miles every weekend to visit Eric, and then her daughter refers to him as Earth Dad. Dis what? <laughs> Yeah. Despite his life sentence, Eric stated, Tammy is what gets me through. I can't think about the sentence. When I do, I do with great sadness and a primal fear. I break into a cold sweat. It's so frightening. I just haven't come to terms with it. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is some crazy shit. So, you know, a, a lot of people didn't understand when that woman married the Berlin Wall, I but she seemed happy. No, but A&E released a documentary about them. Various, various shows on TV have released specials about the Menendez brothers. There have been more than one made-for-TV movie about these crazy fuckers on Lifetime TV. They've been featured on Snapped. They've been featured on Lifetime movies. Last podcast on the left, uh, Natural Born Killers. Like, there have been HLN stories about tons, tons and tons and tons of people have covered this particular case. So... The American crime story um, that, that they did was pretty good. Yeah, well, I'm sure. But again, I just really like the 90s, so I, I like watching things from What's the interesting 90s. is HLN launched the new series How It Really Happened with Hill Harper with an episode featuring the Menendez brothers. The episode is titled The Menendez Brothers Murder in Beverly Hills and ends with a telephone interview of Lyle from jail with Chris, Chris Cuomo. I watched that. It was super interesting. Because you don't, you don't ever, you rarely see what happens to these dudes 20 or 30 years down the line. Do they actually admit it? Who? The brothers? Yeah. Lyle, of course yeah. they do. But they said they did it because. But they admit that it was like premeditated. But they, did they never. They, they don't never say that it was premeditated. They don't, they 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 don't say it's premeditated, but they say that basically the abuse that they suffered caused them to snap, essentially. So they're yes. still holding to that yes. line, basically. Um, gotcha. What's interesting enough, this is kind of a pop culture-y kind of thing, but the Menendez brothers are believed to be in the background of the 1990-91 NBA Hoops Mark Jackson base basketball card, yeah, which I've the New York that. Knicks point guard <laughs> is seen making a bounce pass as they appear to be sitting courtside behind Jackson. In December yeah, of 2018, that. an eBay, or excuse me, in December 2018, eBay started pulling auctions in which they are mentioned in the listing. So people were like cashing in on that shit. Do they say if it's verified? Because I've seen that picture and it, it doesn't does say, look like the New York, them. The New York Knicks played not, 28 though. games during the period when the Menendez brothers went on a spending spree after the murders of their parents. Some eBay sellers have continued to sell the card and have also altered the images accompanying the listing so the men purportedly to be the Menendez brothers are neither mentioned in the listing or seen in the photos of the card accompanying the listing. So some are trying to cash in on it and some are like, no, we don't want to be involved in that. There's definitely two people behind Phil Jackson in this picture. Are you looking at it? But you have to buy it to find right? out. So uh, this to me is very, very interesting because uh, at that time, p I think people had a, a very, very difficult time believing that two young teenage boys working together could do such a heinous thing to their parents. Yeah, and it was heinous. Like, it was a horrific, horrific murder. So it was overkill. 
I mean, they didn't stab him, but yeah. what they did was overkill. A lot of gunshots. And I think that that's kind of the big thing for me about the abuse claims was the mother seemed to have been gotten more of the overkill, but she was not the abuser, right? Like she just didn't stop it. Supposedly, if you believe their claims of abuse, I, I'm not sure I do. I was do. just going to ask you, do you believe their but claims? But there was no reason. I, I don't think I believe the sexual abuse claims. I think I, I think I believe the physical abuse, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe. I have a hard time believing that I don't a know. death I really that was so violent and so, so many shots would be just for some money. I mean, if it was just for the money and they were like, hey, we need to kill mom and dad because we want to take the insurance money, that wouldn't it just be like a shot to the back of the head and be done? I think that they were angry so at their parents. What? And that's why the murder was so bad. I don't know. you think it was just being a self-entitled little prick? That I fully or believe. Or do you think there was some abuse? Yeah. Yeah. I think there may have been some abuse. I don't, I don't know. I just don't know. I want, I, I kind of vacillate between believing the victims and not wanting to say, I just flat out don't believe a sexual abuse claim. I'm just not well, sure I mean, it's I one do. thing when one person goes overkill on a parent, then you can start to anticipate and think that possibly there may be some mental health issues that are going on that have caused this to happen if they were indeed not physically abused. But when you get the two brothers in unison acting to commit a crime so violently and so kind of overkill with so many shots and so many different things done to the parents, that makes me think that there is possibly something that did happen and that it, this, this wasn't just a random act because they wanted the money. I, I think I kind of disagree with that. I don't think that just the fact that they both were in on it means that there was something deeper to it. I think that the older brother... He was like it's it's shown that he was incredibly manipulative. The older brother, I, I believe it's the older brother who was also trying to be an okay, actor. So let's maybe. let's take this in context and let's put it in the context of that case that we talked about in an early episode with the Papin sisters, the Papin sisters. Do you think it was that sort of a situation mm-hmm. where the older sister manipulated the younger sister? The younger sister, once disconnected from the older sister, was fine. Do you think it was that kind of a situation with these two brothers? Um, possibly. I think there was a more severe mental illness with the sisters, though, than what with the. But they had suffered abuse and incest and all kinds of other things as young children growing up. Physical abuse, sexual abuse and mental abuse. And Mm -hmm. it created this sort of a mental health issue in these two young women in a similar kind of a vein. Right. I mean, I think that's a really good argument. And I don't have an argument against it other than I just I don't know. I would be interested to look at psychological reports for these two young men now. Um, Obviously not young men anymore. They're in their Mm -hmm. 50s I believe. But as always with most of these cases we don't have the entire picture of this. We don't have all the court documents Mm -hmm. in front of us. We have speculation. We have what we've heard in the media. We have what's written in articles and Wikipedia, which I use liberally as a source. We have that information as well, but this is not a hundred percent of the piece. I'd say the information that we have is probably only 50% of what is offered in this case, 50% of the information. And, and and, and the way we did this this episode is you were kind of telling me the story. So I don't have any source material in front of me. Everything I'm saying is kind of based on memory or things like that. So I don't I don't have the direct information to provide the, where I'm getting this other than it's just something I've heard or read over time. And I'll look for it later, I guess. But I, one of them I know had written the screenplay where they where two brothers murdered right. their parents. Right. And another one, either the same brother or the other brother. One of them really wanted to be an actor. And when one of the brothers came off from the stand, he could report to his attorneys which people in the in the courtroom and in the jury box were crying when he's telling his story of sexual abuse. Like he can tell you which jury members and people in the courtroom were. So he was clearly like very manipulative. So. Yeah, it seems like it was a performance, and that's kind of why I 
think that maybe this was a So tactic. the older brother was the one that was wanting to be an actor, and you think he planned this whole thing and that the younger brother just kind of played into it with him because he was man- easily manipulated. Or, or maybe they planned it together. Like, I don't know how it came about. I don't know if one manipulated the other or if they both decided that maybe, uh, maybe their parents cut them off. You know, I, I, I don't know. I think money is, is a lot more of a motivator than what we think. And I think that it's because we, you and I, don't know those levels of right. wealth. Well, you know this I mean? case is particularly interesting to me because, number one, there's no question that these boys, men whatever you want to call them, did this crime. The question becomes, are they somehow justified? Are they somehow excused? Are the charges against them somehow diminished or or should somehow be mitigated or mitigated because of the circumstances surrounding this case? Should the abuse be an issue that's considered when you think about the sentencing guidelines for these two gentlemen? Should they have been given the opportunity for parole at some point? Do you think there is anything redeemable about these two men that they could be rehabilitated and potentially let back out into society? Um, I, I'm somebody who thinks that if, if it's somebody who commits a murder like this and it was as bad as it was, I don't think that those, that these brothers are likely to commit another murder because it was a, it was a family member and I think it was motivated by money. Um, so I have less of an issue with them being granted parole than I do with somebody like a Jeffrey Epstein or like an R. Kelly or somebody who I do think has a very high likelihood of committing another crime. It's interesting because many countries like Canada and England and some of the other countries in Europe, they don't have a situation where there's no possibility for parole. The U S is pretty much unique Mm -hmm. on that score. Canada and Great Britain and some of the other countries over there, you can only hold somebody in prison for a certain amount of time before they have to be offered the possibility of parole. We have decided that we we don't want to allow that, that we can. Well, and I also wonder what their prison system is like. Is there a rehabil- rehabilitation component to their prison systems that we don't have here? Because we certainly don't have that. You know what I yeah. mean? Well, I mean, we definitely look at what the possibility is for the person to commit another crime afterward. But I think that that's done more in the sentencing phase when determining whether to give them parole or not, rather than deciding on parole later down the road, giving them the possibility of parole and then deciding whether to keep them in prison or not based upon their ability to be rehabilitated or not. It's a yeah, I don't really have an issue with the possibility of parole because if because I that doesn't necessarily mean they'll get parole, right? So if they're like if they have the opportunity to earn parole, I don't necessarily have a problem. I think with there are that. some instances where people just simply should not be given that option. Jeff, Jeffrey Dahmer, that, Ted Bundy, I agree with those that. Like serial some, killers, some, some, things like that. Yeah, those guys should never be granted parole. But granted, they're a very small portion right. of the prison population. I, I do. Agree I with think that. that people make mistakes. People make stupid decisions. People do dumb things when they're young. That does not mean that that life should necessarily Mm -hmm. be thrown away. Granted, murder is awful. The families of these murder victims have suffered irreparable damage that can never be fixed. But shouldn't that person have the ability or the possibility to make up for that in some way, shape, or form to help society if they want to? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. What do you, so what do you think? Do you think that they were abused and that it was uh, I don't justified? think they were sexually abused. I think maybe their parents were very strict and they were pissed about that. But I, they sound mm-hmm. to me like a bunch of spoiled, petulant little shitheads who basically were like, our parents cut off our yeah. allowance, so we're going to kill them and get the money. That's that's my take that's on it. That's kind of how I feel, too. And, and like you said, I would be interested to know what, um, like, court-appointed psychologists and... and what they have to say. I'd about love that, to see know? those court documents to look at the trial notes, to see, you know, the transcribed documents and see what actually, what kind of testimony was actually given. But my take on it, and I feel like I'm a pretty fucking good judge of character is that these guys were just basically a bunch of spoiled little assholes whose parents cut off their allowance. And they were like, no way we're going to kill him and get the insurance money. And they yeah. thought they sat together and had a discussion because they're like, mom and dad cut off our allowance. 
we're not allowed to drive our Mercedes anymore. We better do something. Yeah. Or like the older one said, they cut off my allowance. They're going to do this to you too. And that manipulated like, you know what I mean? Like one of those it. things. Yeah. I, I tend to believe that the older one was the mastermind behind it, the one that was into acting and all that kind of shit, and that the younger one just kind of went along with it, mm-hmm. because that is typically the way it goes. I mean, there have been countless other cases with siblings committing crimes together where the older sibling definitely influenced the younger sibling, including the Papan sisters yeah. that we talked about in an earlier episode. And then once those siblings are separated, the younger sibling who was initially influenced by the older sibling becomes completely normal, and it's, it's just a wonder and a surprise that they ever committed that crime in the first place according to psychologists and prison officials and right. whatever so it's interesting it's definitely an interesting port part do you think that that's true for the menendez brothers that it's like if you separate them that they lose this control like hold i don't over think each other? that they had a, a strong hold as the papine sisters had but i do think that that was sort yeah. of disconnected a little bit when they were separated but I, I honestly think that the younger sibling in this particular instance, the younger Menendez sibling, had a little bit more say in the process himself. I think he was also a spoiled little shit right. and basically agreed with his brother. The brother was the mastermind who concocted this plan, and he went along with it because he figured he was getting abused, too. And he didn't like the way his parent, the, the trajectory right. of the situation, and was like, well, let's just fucking do this because we can get the insurance money. And somehow they thought, hey, we're going to be able to get away with murder when no one else has. Yeah. And I do want to say, I think there was, like, and maybe this was like a predetermined thing that they were going to talk about in their testimony, but I, like, it did, that was one of the things in the trial that one of them said that he was abused, he was sexually abused as as a very young child and didn't tell his brother until much later and then that's when the other brother said I also was abused so they they portrayed it as sexually abused this was correct yeah sexual abuse so they portrayed it as if it wasn't something that they that either brother knew about with the other in terms of the other brother but again I mean I don't know I don't know that's entirely possible I mean I it's so hard to say. We can speculate up and down, up one side it and is. down the other all day long. But when it comes to knowing what actually happened, there's probably two people that know exactly what happened, the father, and he's not telling because he's dead, and the, and the sons. And ultimately speaking, we may never know. But the main issue here is you can't kill somebody because they sexually abuse you. You have to mm-hmm. let the justice system work. You have and to go to the police. You have to go through the court system. You can't just go around willy-nilly killing people, period. And logic would dictate that the one who would have the more violent death would be right, the abuser. and not the mom. And that's not so, the case. The mother had the more violent death. just a fascinating case for me. And just hearing these yeah. two gentlemen speak, and if you want to see more of it, just go check out those interviews on the Discovery Channel and HLN and... Because those interviews are super, super interesting. I get the sense that the brothers are repentant. I get the sense that they are like, holy shit, we did some stupid shit when we were young teenage boys. We regret it every day. Mm. We are truly sorry for what happened. If we could go back and take it all back, we would. I get a genuine sense of remorse from them. I don't get that they are unrepentant. I don't get that they're like, hey, fuck the world. You really get a sense from them that they yeah. are like, hey, we did something really bad. We were stupid. We were so stupid. Yeah. And then you have people who commit multiple murders, multiple unrelated murders, serial murders, who, or serial rapes or something like that, who don't, who aren't repentant, who yeah. get parole. Who basically give the world a middle <laughs> finger and then go do it again. I would say that's the thing that I would prefer is I don't know if I think they deserve parole, but I think that the it, the sentencing should be applied more consistently. Yeah. Agreed. You know what I mean? All right. Well, I think we've pretty much killed this case for the evening. Pardon my choice of choice yeah, of wording. We solved it. <laughs> But this is the point where we're going to say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our little podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, suggestions, corrections, etc., please send us an email. We love getting emails from you guys, even if they're corrections. 
thebfdpodcast at gmail.com is our email address. We would be more than happy to put that in the show notes as well. Darcy, social media. We are at the BFD Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. We really, really hope you guys have enjoyed the show tonight. And if you have, please don't be shy about reaching out to us. Like our post, um, subscribe, rate us, give us a review. Even if it's a negative review, I'd still say go for it because it gives us the opportunity to look at what we're doing and focus more, cons- focus more, th- focus more on how to fix what we may potentially yeah. be doing wrong and make this a better podcast for everyone. We're still learning and we want to get better and those help us get better. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky and wild stuff, as well as all the crazy criminal cases you guys love hearing about. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real and always live your best life. Bye. Bye guys. <laughs>